Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new edition of Uncaged. This is a very unique podcast today. It's an interview I did actually a couple months ago before November, so before the election. <clears throat> and the reason I bring this up is because you'll hear the context of that here in just a second. Um, so I did an interview with a gentleman who owns a Instagram page called Tripwires and Triggers. You're welcome to check it out because it's Tripwires and Triggers. He's an ex-DEA agent. He goes into the who he is. And what the reason why I interviewed him, I, I heard him speak at a couple of uh, local small events, a very private event, and I was really just blown away with his data. His whole mission in life is to have the Mexican cartel be named a terrorist organization. And he talks about how the massive amount of money, sex trafficking, is coming through the Mexican cartel. It is one of the largest terrorist organizations in the world. He talks about the money behind it. He talks about the sex trafficking that's coming through it, as well, of course, as the drugs that is coming through our nation and hurting so many Americans. And so I know this is a unique and odd interview that I'm doing, but I believe in the world of uncaging, uncaging your mindset, uncaging your view about what's really happening. He's really trying to bring to the American people the truth about what the Mexican cartel is is doing, Mexican cartels, there's more than one, and how they um, are truly actually being propped up by uh, government. And so he really wants to bring light to that. And so we talk about that as well as how their number two product, number one, number two product, depending on the, the month, is sex trafficking. Um, it's I, I'm a big, huge uh, donor two organizations here locally in Austin that help women get off the streets. This is why this is important to me. Um, <clears throat> that's where I give my money to. That's where I choose to give back. And I believe that in my intention of life is to help 10,000 women to start and run their own small businesses because I want women to have a choice in their life, choice over their body, choice over situations. That is, that's my why in life. And so I just give you a heads up about that right now as you're about to listen to this. This is definitely not for the faint of heart. He, you know, um, <clears throat> you're welcome to check him out at Tripwires and Triggers on Instagram. He does videos right now as we're talking. He's actually in on the border right now doing live videos. If you're listening to this in December of 2020, he's actually right now live on the border doing videos about what's really going on at the border of our a great state, Texas, um, but on the border of, of Mexico and all the massive killings that's going on. So I'm just giving you a heads up right now. It's a very different and unique kind of, of audio that I do. There's going to be, there's a video of it. And I hope that you take this into consideration while you're looking at your business in life and like, where do you give your money to? Where do you give what, you know, what's important to you. I could just say for myself, what's important to me is helping more women get off the streets to have a choice in life and to step, be able to step away from sex trafficking. Um, all right, here we go. Hi, everyone. My name is Heather Havenwood, and welcome to Insights with Influencers. My name is Heather Havenwood, and I am super excited to have you here. This is a very unique interview. I'm going to be interviewing someone that actually has guns on him. I'm just kidding. Do you have guns on you? No guns. Right. Okay, good. Just kidding. Um, my name is Heather Haywood. We're here in Capital Factory right now, and we're in Austin, Texas. I'm going to be introducing you to a very, very nice gentleman who, yes, does have guns, and yes, he can shoot them, but hopefully he won't shoot them at me, right? That's right. Because this no is worries. an influencer show. This is all nicey-nice. You're not going to be hitting me up. But um, 
Jason Jones, let me tell you a little bit about who he is. He's a retired captain from the Texas Department of Public Safety, Intelligence, and Counterterrorism Division. So that right there, we know you know what the hell you're doing around a firearm. Can we say that's true? Very true. Very true. Okay. But this is, we're going to be talking about today something that is a very serious subject. That's why I have him on. So, yes, he is an influencer, and yes, he is a leader. But honestly, who he is is someone who is fighting a fight behind the scenes that you and I probably don't even know is happening because it's not on the mainstream media. And that's what I want to bring to light today. We're here in Austin, Texas. I was born and raised in Texas. You were also born and raised in Texas as well, mm-hmm. Houston, both of us. And I know for myself, I grew up knowing about the drug cartel and the Mexican cartel. Of course, we're in Texas. This is kind of an everyday thing. But you have been inundated inside of that conversation for how many years? Oh, a long time. Started in 98 when I graduated from the DPS Academy, and they said, Jason, where would you like to go? And I said, well, I'm from Austin. I sure would like to stay here. And they said, fantastic. El Paso, Texas is where you're going. (laughs) And that's exactly really how how it started. Um, And then after that, I just could not get away from the border. Finally got back to Austin after being in El Paso for two years. And the next thing you know, I'm promoting to sergeant, and they send me to Brownsville, Texas. Okay, so what you all know, if you don't know what Brownsville, Texas is, it's pretty much, I would say, the S-hole of Texas. There's just not much there. There's it's not a much border there. town, right? It is. Yeah. It, so I've never been there, thank God. I don't really want to go. But can you just give people an understanding of what Brownsville is like? Yeah, so it's close to, uh, it's right across from Matamoros, Mexico, first off. Uh, it's close to the Gulf of Mexico, so the waterway there is, uh, the river, the Rio Grande River is very wide, and the river is flowing very deep, and it flows very quickly, okay. which is part of the challenge, too, when you're enforcing border security or working the Mexican cartels and other transnational crime, compared to 1,290 miles away where I had been in El Paso, yeah. where the environment is vast, right, because yeah. West Texas is huge. And the river's very narrow, and in many areas you can walk across, and it's not even up to your knee. I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't understand who've never been to Texas and never really seen a lot of pictures. When they see the Rio Grande, it's not like something you could just go, it is literally a... I mean, explain it, that it's not something you can necessarily swim across. It's challenging to swim across. This is not something you could just – it's challenging. Can you explain that? Because they don't show this on TV. They don't explain yeah. it. It is, and, you know – I think that's the other thing that's really not told is how diverse it is along our border. Never mind the rest of the southwest border with New Mexico, Arizona, and California, right? Just Texas alone. Uh, And how it zigs back and forth when you're down there. Those those different channels and how that river flow also determines how the smuggling occurs and why Mm -hmm. the cartels use certain areas of that river to smuggle. So you're absolutely right. You know, if you're in Brownsville, well, they're floating the drugs across as quickly and as best they can because that river's moving so fast. You go up anywhere farther west from Laredo and the river's not near as deep or wide. Hell, in some areas, you can't even get a boat on it. Right. I mean, right. That's one of the things I think a lot of people understand when they were talking a lot during the 2016 election of Trump and building the wall. Some people just have this view of like just Texas and it's flat and just build a wall. That's like not how it looks. But one of the things that caught my attention when I heard you the other night um, is that you're talking about how nowadays that the um, the drug has actually moved from marijuana and whatnot to meth from Mexico. Is that my understanding. Can you explain yeah. a little bit about that and why? 
So the real transition is, you know, we remember the Mexican cartels where they were moving mostly marijuana back in the old days, yep. right? And, yeah. you know, that conversation. And cocaine, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and other drugs, of course, yeah. heroin and things. But marijuana was their, their cash crop, as, as mm. we would call it. Now now go to where we are today. Marijuana throughout the country is mostly legalized. And, the car, you know, we were all told the cartels would be shut down, right? They're going to go out of business if we just legalize drugs. Well, really what we've seen and what those of us who were working them back in the day, we all knew that there was no shutting them down. They're much bigger. And what they were going to do is transition. And that's what we're seeing now. They've transitioned to controlled substances such as fentanyl, uh, methamphetamine, heroin, which we've, we've known about for a while. But... You know, an example of that is these are hard drugs. These are drugs that kill. I mean, we measure fentanyl by the number of people it kills, not by the weight. So it's an example of how the cartels are transitioning from something that, you know, is considered more recreational, if you will, by the public, I think, the general public, into what they're doing now, which is pushing poison. Yeah. And it, it truly is. And that's not because I think it or I feel it. Look at our overdose death numbers in the United States. They're pretty, pretty horrible pretty, right now. Do you, can, you, can you share any of those stats? Sure. I don't know any. 2017, over 70,000 American citizens died from overdose deaths. That was unprecedented. We had never reached that pinnacle. Then wow. in 2018, mm-hmm. we were at 67,000. Most of that was because of Narcan being pushed to first responders where when they arrive, to someone who was overdosing on opioids, you could give them that and it would bring them back. It would counter the drug. So, you know, that saved thousands of lives from, within a one-year period. And then now 2019, right, over 71,000. So, wow. And that's not those numbers come from the CDC. So that's where we're getting them. And just a, an understanding, is meth something that gets people high or is it they just go crazy? I don't know a lot about it. Yeah, it's a stimulant. It's a stimulant. It, it is. Okay. And, and so what, what you're seeing right now, uh, such as what happened with George Floyd, is what we call super mething um, or super dosing. Say that again, super what? Super meth. Okay. Or super dosing. What they're doing is they're taking both meth and fentanyl. So you're getting a tremendous high with a tremendous dump because fentanyl is a depressant. So talk a little bit more, George Floyd. You were sharing with me another time about that he had this in his system and some of the issues, what was going on there. Can you explain that? Yeah, I don't. I don't because it wasn't highlighted, obviously. It was just the death that was highlighted. Sure. I, but I, not what was in the system. It goes back to kind of about what I was saying about these chemicals are poison. Yeah. I mean, they really are. And so... When you're on both of those drugs at the same time, you have one, it's a massive stimulant. Meth will push you up extremely high. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you can then fall. And that's what fentanyl does is it brings you way down. It's a de- massive depressant. Now you take positional asphyxia where you take an individual and you put them in handcuffs. What you're doing is you're limiting the expansion of the diaphragm. We've known for many years that one thing you don't do is put someone into a pretzel position or into handcuffs and then lay them over on their side and expect that diaphragm to be able to expand on its own for a long period of time. So now you take his position, what happened with fentanyl and meth, and then you put three cops on him, which I cannot articulate any training that does that in the United States of America and not expect someone to die from that or the ability possibly to. I still can't wrap my mind around what those right. officers did. But where I'm going with this is, is that when you see something like that fa- yeah. happening far from our border, again, where do those chemicals and that poison come from? It's coming from the cartels in Mexico. Are you so? I just want to be clear. Do you think that there's other cartels in the in the world that are pushing into the United States specifically, or is really Mexico is is the United States Mexico's territory? Well, the way I would look at that today is, yes, there are other cartels. So what is a cartel, first yeah, off, let's right? let's look at that. Let, let's right. look at that for a second. 
Um, a cartel is really the word is an agreement. A lot of people might not know that. I mean, I it's that. one criminal organization working with another one that that grow in size to work and move product okay. across space, right across different parts of of Mexico. What has happened now is that word's been bastardized in so many different ways. And now... Hollywood. Yeah. And and so if you look at how the cartels operate, let's just talk about Sinaloa Cartel, for example, one of the largest. They're in over 54 countries around the world today. Sinaloa Cartel is working with every major U.S.-based gang that we have. And they don't care if that gang is linked to uh, race-based gangs or not. You know, a lot of us remember the days where, you know, we talked about Bloods and Crips. Yeah. We've got places in Texas where Bloods and Crips are working together today. And, and I'll never forget, it was like 2013 or 2014 when I first received the briefing. And I thought, this can't be right. I mean, this, this, can't, you know, this is what we've always known. But it's where the game has changed. Criminal organizations today are working together to win. To win, right. Because they know there's power in numbers and distribution. That's right. Right. And they're wow. getting into the global market. And that's why... When I talk about the cartels, you don't, you will never hear me say the drug cartel. You'll never hear me say they're, they battle or they fight to control supply routes like you hear a lot of so-called yeah. experts because that's not why they fight and that's not why they battle. They battle for control and they battle to dominate mm-hmm. space. And that's really the difference between a cartel and a gang. So if, if, you, if you were talking to a cartel member right now, let's just say, for example, who is their enemy? Is it really – the the forces the the police is it, do they consider that their enemy who really is their biggest enemy no their their biggest enemy are their rivals okay so they so their the rival companies let's call them rival yeah, that's cartels a good yeah if you if we were talking to the gulf cartel for example which i've talked to many times and still do consistently or the los zetas cartel for example when they went to war and they split up i was a lieutenant in laredo texas when that happened um, and we were talking to both sides. It's that they believe themselves to be a company. Let's get back to doing business. Yeah, they it's run a business. it like a Fortune 500 company. Absolutely, not just this violence that we see today. In the old days, as they were transitioning into this hyper violence that we see today, yeah, many of them didn't like it. They would always say, "No, we got to get back to doing business and get the old company back together." Interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. No, I, and I, I have read that that they look at it as companies, and, and that's why I'm saying who do who do they see as their enemy? Because I, I don't. I'm just making this up, but I don't think that they actually see. Let's say. The cops and or the DPS or whatever the counterintelligence system to actually be a enemy in like, the United States. You're saying yeah, like spe- not in Mexico, in the United States. No, they do not fear us, and I think that's yeah. They, I don't think they fear us. They they don't at all. And you, I think they you, laugh at us to be honest. They, but that's well, they, me. They really do. And if we were sitting across from them, they would tell you that because they have no reason to fear us. They know that the United States at this point is not going to send military into Mexico to go after right, them. Right. Right. So. Could they be indicted and brought into the U.S.? Absolutely. That happens here and there. But as a whole, I mean, they're able to run. People don't understand. I mean, I think because of Hollywood and whatnot, they think of cartels as just, you know, slang word, wetback, sitting back, hanging out. You know, it's not. These These are businessmen. These are People that look at it as a company, there's a hierarchy inside of that. Am I right or wrong in that? No, but no, you're These are people right. who are businessmen that if you make them today, they – act and talk like business people, business men and women. Um, I think that that's one of the, the things I want to bring a highlight and why I want to talk to you is that I think people don't realize how much 
the Mexican cartel or Mex- different cartels are infiltrating our country and changing our entire country. Absolutely. So a cartel, what separates them from a gang, let's say, is that they truly control territory. So they fight for, for that territory. Mm-hmm. Let's, so let's say a plaza like the Reynosa Plaza, which is a municipality. Everything within that municipality is under their control. That means the local cops, the state cops, the federal cops, and then the department, their their equivalent of DOD, right? Okay. Their military. When the new generals come into those areas, phone calls are made. So corruption levels are extremely high. Now, am I going to say every single one of those guys in that chain are corrupted? Absolutely not. But when you are in a high leadership position, those are who they target. Do you see what I'm getting You're at? saying? And that's how they yeah. control and they manipulate. Look at the number of governors in Mexico that have been indicted from the United States. It's, it's unbelievable because so many of them, to get into those positions, have to work with the cartel that's in control of that. So area. how do they look at the United States territory? Do they look at it as a territory? Do they say, okay, your cartel is going to take Austin and you're going to take Dallas? I mean, how do they? Yeah, they do. But they don't have the control here like they do in Mexico. They may push product in this area. You know, um, CJNG in Sinaloa, very heavily influenced in Chicago. Um, San Antonio is the Los Zetas. Why? Because they control Nuevo Laredo. Uh, if you look at Houston, a lot of Gulf Cartel and yeah. Los Zetas there, along with uh, Sinaloa and others. So okay. they take the cities based on geographic area that they're across the border from and that they're the closest to usually. But with that being said, they're always adjusting their market, and they know their market very, very well. When there's a slight adjustment, that's when they that's when they, they hone in on it. And a great example of that is if you look at fentanyl. We never had a fentanyl seizure at our southwest border until 2015. Hmm. Why? Um, because there was no... Think about it. If you think back, do you remember fentanyl be a problem in no, this country? No, that, that I remember. Cocaine and marijuana. And, right, exactly. And, so when they saw the heroin market hitting where it was and that everyone was adjusting to opioids, yeah, that's when they slipped in and said, let's start push, pushing fentanyl. And now that's where you see it today. Wow. So there's a... And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of people will say across the country that... You know, if the U.S. didn't have such a addiction problem, right? Well, if there wasn't a supply, there wouldn't be a demand. Right. Right. Exactly. Or if there wasn't a demand problem, there wouldn't be a supply issue to it. That's totally wrong because what a lot of people have never done is sit across and listen to them and see how they push product for free into the United States to gain that market. To gain the marketplace. That's right. And then they and then they push with it. And I'll give you a great example of that too. I was I was stationed in Houston with the Methamphetamine Initiative Group. Our job was to take down labs when we had domestic labs in the United States. Houston and the surrounding counties had a big problem with in 2006. So I was stationed there as a narcotics agent, and I loved this job. It was, a, it was an incredible job. We just went out and disrupted labs. And then we'd fully dress up in uh, SCBAs. Uh, What's SBA? SBCA? SCBAs. That's how much I know. Self-contained breathing apparatuses. And so hazmat the whole, suits? Hazmat suits, okay. the whole shebang. And you go in, and just to like... Take this much methamphetamine, that, that right there runs around $3,000 to wow. dispose of that. Okay. And that's what we did. And literally, as in the United States, we began outlawing pseudoephedrine. You may remember this. Yes. So that people couldn't go into these, these Walgreens I and remember. different pharmacies, right? They couldn't walk in and buy everyone's pseudoephedrine at one time, which they used to do. Um, the cartels saw that, and they said, hang on. 
we could take over the meth market. They started importing pseudoephedrine from China. That's when the mega labs started. And I remember it like yesterday because when that when those laws were being passed and when Texas happened, it was one week we went from like 20 labs down to 10, down to five, and then boom, they controlled the market. And I will never forget it. We were debriefing. Of, what market did they control after the? F- they took over the meth market. They took over the meth market. Exactly. Because there was a doorway to do that. They saw where the the U.S. cooks operating in the United States weren't going to be able to obtain pseudoephedrine. So uh, they said, "Let's take it." Let's take it. And they did. And they've had it ever since. But see, that's the thing I get frustrated about because the American people aren't told that. Instead, they no, continue not, to think yeah. that it's because if you didn't have that drug problem. They wouldn't be in, in the power. Of yeah, it's not the drug like problem. It's the supply of that. I mean, we're here in Austin, Texas, and, um, you know, we're literally right now in the middle of a what you wouldn't call a pandemic or whatnot. And Austin downtown is completely empty except homeless people. And I was texting you on my way here going, I, I can't get out of the car right now. There's some homeless guy next to me screaming. You know? <laughs> and um, I laugh about it, but at the same time, you know, it's it's a lot of it's because of these a particular kind of drug. I, mean, I don't know what this gentleman's on. I don't know what the situation is. But a lot of it is because of drugs that they get on and then all of a sudden they lose their life. So it's more than just a drug problem. It's way more than that. It's way more than a supply problem. So let me ask you a question on this. So this might sound like an odd question. But if you were sitting across from one of the cartels, um, I feel like I know the answer to this question, but maybe I don't. Uh, why do they do it? And I say that sound that odd, but I would think if they were going to be in business, they make a lot of money on it, of sure. But they they consciously know they're pushing a product that kills. Consciously, why do they do it? Seems like it would be bad for business, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 At um, least they're conscious on some level. Yeah. A little bit. No. It's a, no. It's no. all about money. It's all about money. It's all about money. And they do not care what that means to you or your family members. I, I was sergeant in Brownsville in 2004, mm-hmm. and we had some intel. You know, this was after 9-11, and so everybody was still worried about that. And this goes to what you just asked. Okay. And we brought in – we were forced to bring in all of our sources because of some intel we had to make sure that there were some Chinese that were supposed to be crossing that had some kind of bomb that everybody was worried about. So I had to debrief them all. I'll never forget this. We brought in this one – uh, lieutenant with the Gulf Cartel that had been working for us for a very long time. And I asked him, I said, you know, I, I don't understand this information. I said, you know, tell me, I mean, surely you guys wouldn't send someone over here with a bomb, right? I mean, y'all would tell us. And he, I'll never forget, he looked back at me, looked at my partner, because I, I, was, I was newer to the area. He looked back at me and he said, you need to understand very quickly, these people down here don't care about anything except money. And I said, even at, at the ability to kill thousands of Americans, and not bad for business, just like most people would think, they do not care. That is not how it's set up. And it's, it, uh, it's, a, it's a reminder to me because <laughs> when I see the number of people that are being killed in Mexico, you know, we're at over 200,000 now since 2006. Just, you know, that's genocide. Where is the, the outcry? And you would think that they would be concerned about that because of what it's doing to their own citizens even. And there's nothing, none of that. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I, I will tell you, Heather, I, I have been absolutely humbled and seen things that uh, our country should have never allowed. And that's why I'm trying to change U.S. policy to fix it. So let's talk about that because you really are, I think, an influencer and a leader 
in this conversation, um, especially right now, we're in a very we're in what I call a high political time. We've been in one for a while, but right now we're in extremely high, <laughs> extremely red zone uh, political time. And you're the first person I've even heard anyone talking about the wall and the border and the cartel. And it's almost as if when I was listening to you, I kind of had this vision of the entire country looking to the left, you know, while the cartels are going to the right. And they're just doing business like crazy. And we're all looking over here and they're completely focused over here and we're missing it. So what is it like right now in this volatile time that we're in politically to be an influencer leader in this conversation? What is that like for you? You know, it's it's been a transition. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to Because you've you. gone from behind the scenes guy, a narc, different names probably, things like that, to a forefront in the spotlight. My undercover name was Jay Giano. And I had nice. a driver's license. I had a social security number card. Jay Giano. Hey, Giano. how you doing? Hey, Jay. Hey, uh, <laughs> did no. I say that right? That's very Italian. Okay. Um, yeah, it was very difficult. I'm not going to kid you. I did not even have a Facebook account. I had nothing. Yes, and I know. I tried to friend you. That didn't really work I, well. Yeah, I'm still learning it's all okay. that stuff. It's okay. We'll let best. it go. We'll I'm let getting it go. better, though, just so you know. Um, <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. I'm humbled that you, that you think that. But it's been a challenge, you know, sure. because for me, I don't care left, right, up or down. I'm going to say exactly what's really happening and from the cartel's perspective, from my experience, and what that, what, what that really means at our border for success. To me, it's not about left or right. To me, it's about what's going to protect Americans, but also what's going to protect Mexican citizens. And to change U.S. policy, to mm-hmm. set us on a, on a finally some kind of level of success, because, you know, right now the numbers are worse than they've ever been. I mean, they just are. That's, that's just the facts of that's it. That's true. So we've got to fix I have, it. This, so an odd question around this, because let's look at the – I don't even know Mexico's population. I don't even – I know here in the country our population, roughly the United States. But what is the population of Mexico? Do you I'm, know? I'm it? not sure. I don't even know. Merlin, you know the Someone you know Google the numbers? that. That's okay. Yeah. So, and I asked that question because leads to this next question. How many people are in the cartel? So is it like the 1% of 1%? Is it only like 10,000 people? I mean, how, and, and obviously there's a network, but I'm talking like the core cartels and how many are there? How many cartels are there and how well, many would you say? I can is, give you estimations. Of course. You know, yeah. You know, we don't can't have give a, you exact numbers and it changes yeah. daily because so many of them are getting killed. But uh, Cartel Jalisco New Generation, that cartel's been around for about 10 years now. Okay. It's estimated value. Uh, first off, it's believed to be in 48 countries around the world. Wow. It is considered to be the most violent cartel in Mexico. Um, they're worth an estimated value of $50 billion with a B. Um, 50 billion and 5,000 operators. So we've done some incredible, I I say we've done some great work. And that's why you hear me trying to get them designated as foreign terrorist organizations, because for 50 years, we've been doing the same law enforcement model, failing as things just continue. Well, you're up against a a company that's 50 billion dollars. And sometimes that's more than an entire state's, I mean, budget for Cops, am I right or wrong? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a number. How much is the number? Yeah. So 130 million. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a lot less than I thought. So you take that one cartel, and just to give you an example about their level of influence here as well, Cartel Jalisco New Generation during Project Python, which DEA conducted in March of this year, okay. took down 20,000 pounds of narcotics and arrested 700 operatives operating in the United States. And you can look it up, Project Python. Wow, that's intense. It is. And I, 
that's why you see me coming public now and saying, no, 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 we got to fix this. It's not about conducting investigations anymore. It's about changing U.S. policy to bring what we call okay. in all of the Homeland Security Enterprise to this fight. That includes the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, by priority and by right. policy. That, that is, that's a game changer. That is a game changer because up until now, would you say that it's local cops or local Texas that has been up against the fight versus what I call a national, like a national guard? Is that what you're trying to say? Like move it more to a national conversation to be up against them like a terrorist organization? A- absolutely. I because really they are. They and, are. And, for you know, sure. To just walk some of the folks through who may not, you know, have been following this this thing. What's happened is then in 2006, the Calderon administration in, in Mexico used their military to go after the cartels in Mexico. That's where we, we, we talk about the insurgency began because that's where the cartels began fighting back against the government of Mexico. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't just relent. They, they began upgrading their capabilities, pulling in military-grade weapons, working with groups like the FARC, which are a designated terrorist group down in Colombia, and really evolving. Now, fast forward wow. to 2009 and 2010, many may remember a cartel known as the Los Zetas. They came from former special forces. Um, they were very, very violent. I worked them extensively along the border with numerous um, groups and uh, different teams that I had under me. And uh, this is when you begin to see the car bombs in mm-hmm. El Paso. You saw them in Nuevo Laredo. You saw them throughout Mexico. And then the evolution of killing innocent people. You may remember the 72 migrants that were brutally killed in Gulf Cartel territory. All mm-hmm. of that was just 72 people trying to make a better way for themselves into the United States. And they just killed them all? And they brutally killed them to make the Mexican government focus on the Gulf Cartel so that it made it look like it was another cartel. So that, and, and I could keep going. You know, you remember the the brutal killing in the Monterey Casino where mm. uh, they set on, set the casino on fire, killed I think fifty four, if I remember off the top of my head. And I can just keep keep giving you numbers. Now look at where they are today. Final transition, which is they operate as a parallel government in Mexico. You see the AMLO administration now. You know, I mean, look back to November when a video Guzman they, they conducted an operation to arrest one of the sons of Chapo Guzman. They released him. The government of Mexico released him when they had him in custody. So this is where we are now. And so that, we're, they're, they're basically equal operator, would you say, of the government? A- absolutely. And, and fully are in pretty much control of certain areas of, of Mexico. Jalisco, where CJNG operates, and mm-hmm. Sinaloa, where, where Sinaloa cartel operates. Wow. I mean, where do you – one, where do, we, where do you think they're going – and then number two, how do you stop it? So where they're going, I, I think we have a pretty good picture. That's, that's a great question. No one ever asks about what are they doing next. Yeah, they, they I'm sure they're not over question. there just hanging out. They are they're planning something. Absolutely, you know their <laughs> accountants are are keeping up with their money and, and their global their global movements. Their their attorneys are ensuring that they're fighting the good fight through any legal means they can. Just locking up their system. This is what they do. Their propaganda cells that run all their YouTube channels, their Twitter, their Facebook, all of that which they have counters any negative narrative against the cartel. So here's where they're going. They're going global. They've done this in the last, I would say, 10 years. They've really expanded. And that conversation needs to be happening to the American people right now. Because hmm. when uh, if you notice cocaine, we don't talk much about we cocaine don't. domestically. The 80s are over. That's right. But where is it? <laughs> where? They, they didn't stop producing it. No. Yeah, $100,000 a kilo in Russia from the Mexican cartels. Wow. Um, Australia was at about 180. Now it's down to about 130 a kilo. 
because they've pushed so much cocaine to, and methamphetamine also into Australia. Europe was around 90 now because they've been pushing so much there, it's down to about 60. So their game is global. And the perception and belief that the American people are always hearing where, um, A, if, uh, uh, you know, if the U.S. would just, you know, not have such a problem, then the cartels would go away. Well, that discussion is over because they're a global problem now. And the solution is designate them as foreign terrorist organizations. Now, why? Why would so I agree with you. But first, why has that not been done yet? Well, it's different. And so. Here's the resistance that we've held back because I really thought we had it, that President Trump was going to do it in November after the LeBaron family was killed. Um, was speaking out everywhere on national television, trying to get anyone that would listen. Hey, we, here's the solution. And then President Trump announced that he was going to do it, if you remember. And the intelligence community, along with the war machine, went crazy. Yeah, and the reason is because, you know, they do not want to turn from Middle East terrorism. I get it, but new threats, new trends change. And think of all the contracts, the money that's going to be lost. There's a lot to that. But at the end of the day, it's going to happen, and I'll tell you why. Because their violence is out of control. And when you talk to them, when you sit across the table from them, like I still do, I will tell you right now, they'll tell you this thing's out of control. They, A lot of the information that we were getting even prior to my retirement that was just incredible intelligence – uh, came from guys whose own families, they were cartel members, but their families were being killed. Even they were saying something's got to be done. What are y'all going to do? <laughs> I mean, so wow. they know it themselves. So inside the cartels telling you information because because their own family's at risk. Absolutely. and um, Makes sense. I took Lara Logan. Uh, with, um, I don't know if you know Lara or not. She used to be with 60 Minutes. Incredible reporter, incredible mm-hmm. reporter. Took her down to the border, and it was it was great. Um, she got to hear from a Halcone, which is a, a lookout. This the Halcone network is what allows us to have a million people moved into our country. This is what's not told to the American people either, right? Okay. You, the perception is that people just run across that border. It's no. not how it works at all. You have people have to pay the peso or the tax to the cartel. This is why they control territory. So to do that. You need a network that allows you to cross and tells you when and how to cross. Same way millions of pounds of drugs move into our country. This network uses two-way handheld encrypted radios, and they are everywhere. And they are watching everywhere on our border. They're in trees. They're on the ground. They're young kids. um, And they communicate to criminals in Mexico to what we call central. Central. And that's the movement. So when I was talking to you about every angle and bend in the river— each bend has a cell of cartel operatives and these hawks on the U.S. side up to 20-something miles. And they watch every movement we make in South Texas. When our helicopters take off from the airfields, they're already watching them. They're calling it out to Mexico, and he's heading west. That's how this works. And that's wow. why you see me doing what I'm doing now. Because my frustration of watching these things being told to the American people— and. and I think a lot of reporters mean well, but they don't understand because they've never been on the ground how in-depth this is. And where I was going with this story about Lara is that we got down there and she got to interview a hawk. And the very first thing he said to her, and she says, how's things in Mexico? And he says, we're at war. And I stopped her and I said, did you catch that? Because that's what they believe. They believe that their cartel is at war with the rival cartel. It's very interesting stuff. The, the, it the, really the, is. Yeah, that's kind of what I was asking earlier. Is like, well, how do they see it being planned? What's their enemy? 
and their enemy is the other cartels, is the other territories. And what I think is interesting about your answer is they don't see the United States as an enemy. No, not at all. No, We've never done anything to them. Right. <laughs> That's my <Yeah>. point. <laughs> we haven't exactly hurt them because any time everything was going down a couple, like I think it was two years ago with the border, and there was a lot of drama about the border, a lot of focus on the border with the media. All, what would they do? The campments, they were focusing on what? All these poor people trying to cross the border. Yeah. They weren't understanding that a lot of that situation is cartel. They don't They don't grasp it. All they do is they, they put a picture of of a woman with a child and then they get people to do tears and go just let them come across they have no idea what the situation is um so i think it's really interesting that you're doing this and i just kind of want to circle back real quick for a wrap up but you know when did you leave the department i left in june of 2016 after 24 years wow okay so here you are we're in 2020 what had you do this, be a voice for this? You just home one day, you're like, I just can't do this anymore. I'm going to be a voice and influencer. What? No, I mean, no, not at all. You're hanging out with your bike. I'm sure you got a bike or something or a Harley. You're traveling the country. You're like, I'm going to turn around and come back to Austin and go hang out with some podcasters. I mean, yeah, no, I, I'll tell you what happened to me. What happened? I, um, I led a unit that I've never talked about publicly. I still can't talk about the unit. Um, okay. It worked very closely with the intelligence community and it worked very closely with units in the Department of Defense and otherwise. Someday I will we'll finally come out and start talking about this. But our job was to understand the tripwires and triggers of what the cartels were doing before it impacted our border. It's about all I'll really say about this unit. Okay. Um, and what we found is the brutal murders that they were committing against innocent migrants just trying to make a better life for themselves. Whether you agree with the law of you know illegal immigration or not, I think we can all agree that yeah. men, women, and children should not be chopped up into pieces no. and hung on bridges. And for me, it was a game changer. We were trying desperately to save their lives. And we were trying to work with anyone that would listen to us to run operations in Mexico to go save those people. And I watched a lot of them die, a lot. And I watched great men and women really were. I mean, I look, I, I get emotional talking about today, mm. trying to do what they could. And these were untold stories that someday are going to come out. It won't come from me, but they're going to come out. The incredible work that Texas did to try to fight that problem. A lot of people may not know, Texas spent $2.2 billion in funds from the state of Texas alone for border security. Uh, when the unaccompanied alien children problem started in 2014, uh, we, we conducted day-in, day-out border operations, and that's where I was the captain over the Border Security Operations Center of the Texas Rangers. Wasn't a Texas Ranger, but I was asked, because of my intelligence background, working with these special units that I can't talk about, uh, to counter the cartel narrative, why I was asked to come in and run, and run that unit. Okay. So that's what did it to me, and I'm just going to tell you straight out. And it, it hit me at the very core, and I said, you know what, enough is enough. It's time to tell the American people because I believe that there is a there should be a gap between what's happening in government and what the American people know. A small gap, right? Because you can that way sources and methods are protected. But what we allowed to happen in this realm is that gap to get way too broad. And we should have never let it happen. And I yeah. think that if we had just communicated better with the American people, and there's not a conspiracy to it or anything like that, just so you know. It's yeah. that law enforcement and government have lost their ability to communicate to the people. Because whatever they say is changed, it's flipped. Right. It just – and so I just said, you know what, I don't care anymore. I'm doing it, and I don't care if anyone likes it or doesn't like it. And then all of a sudden, 
it just has started to domino and it's fine well, it's but because, it's taken years it's, it's because you've years. also having a conversation with with american people that we want to have we want to know what's been going on and no one talks you're right and, and i think that's one of the reasons why things have blown up you are on i'm not going to say the name of the blog that you're on just because i might get <laughs> on this video on certain places but you can go check it out where can they find you you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on uh, Twitter and on Instagram as Jason Jones, Tripwires and Triggers, and that's J-A-E-S-O-N Jones. I also write for Breitbart, just so you know, as Cartel Chronicles team, and we, we put out daily information about yeah. what's really happening at the board. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about. Um, like, the, So the Cartel Crimes, you talk about exactly what's been going on. It's more of an awareness. Mm-hmm. The reason I want to say that is because it is connected to, to Breitbart and, and some people might go, oh, well, it's only one way because of oh, for the political thing. Political yeah, affiliation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so great politi- group of guys, though. I'll, I'll tell you, the uh, Brandon Darby uh, is over the cell of Cartel Chronicles, and that's all we write about. He's yeah. an incredible guy, and what they're trying to do is the same thing. And you know, it was nice for me to finally find a group of guys who are willing to tell the story. Yeah. And then they found me trying to do the same thing. We all came together. Now it's been it's been nice. fantastic. It's great. Well, group. congratulations on that that you're just telling the story because we want to hear it as Americans. And I just have to have some fun a little bit. Um, I grew up in Houston as you did, and I went to three years of in high school into three years for, for, I guess, to learn Spanish. And I know nothing, right? <laughs> Hola, como estas? Muy bien. Baño and beer or something. Hey, if it so, makes you feel any better, they sent me to you. school after school after school. And I could get through a traffic stop, but the, my big takeaway from the school was, escuchen, Jason. Listen, Jason. Listen. That's what she used to tell me. Listen, Jason. No leche. That's really about it. It's so horrible. And I feel bad saying that every time because I grew up in Texas and I grew up around Spanish people, but they always spoke English for me. So I appreciate that. Um, and I'm really glad what you're doing is want to honor you for what you're creating, what you're doing as an influencer, and you are a leader. Well, to me, an influencer that. is on the cutting edge of something that's willing to tell the story, right? Is willing to actually share something that no one's willing to share, and you're in the front lines of that, you know, and I'm sure you get hit, is what I call it, um, and so I just want to acknowledge you for what you're creating. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. of course. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm going to say the name. It's Jason Jones, and yes, it's J-A-E-S-O-N Jones. Jason, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Oh, great to be with you. Heather. Again, guys, my name is Heather Havenwood, and welcome to Insights with Insights with Heather Havenwood. Take care.